welcome to the Guhei. In this episode, I'm chatting with Donald Pearson, a 2016 graduate hailing from The Knife Company, also known as The Really Mean Pirates. Donald is a devil dog who served four years as the budget officer for Marine Corps Forces South, where he was responsible for managing allocated resources for all Marine Corps operations in Central and South America. In the first two years in this role, Donald discovered his passion for finance, complex problem solving, and telling stories through numbers. Once the flame was lit, he used these skills to act intentionally and purposefully to shape the vision of the post-military life he wanted for him and his family. Today, Donald is a certified financial planner for Westpac Wealth Partners. Additionally, he holds several other professional certifications. According to him, he eagerly rises every morning energized by the prospect of helping professionals, families, and small business owners enjoy their lives by reducing the stress caused by money and financial decisions. Donald epitomizes the power of the USNA Alumni Network and Navy Football Brotherhood. He reached out to me a few months ago on LinkedIn after reading one of my posts in the Navy Football Brotherhood group. I've only met Donald virtually, but in getting to know him, it turns out we're living parallel lives on different timelines. We have a lot in common. Like me, he's a Napster. Both of us experienced neck injuries while playing Navy football. Mine ended my football playing days. Fortunately, he was able to play on. He and I both enjoy DIY home projects. We share a preference for the unabridged versions of our first names. And until recently, we were both coffee addicts. Sadly, I had to give it up. Our paths, however, diverge when it comes to his youth and good looks. Donald is passionate about finance and equally so when it comes to the lessons he learned when he transitioned from military service to the private sector. He's joining me today to give us the guhe on the best practices he used to identify and attain his dream job following the completion of his five-year military obligation. Let's get to it. Thanks for joining me here on the Guhei. I found when we talked earlier that you had a very interesting story about your transition. And the thing that popped out to me is that most people begin their transition planning from the military about a year out. Mm -hmm. And some people recommend a little bit earlier. You start planning your transition three years out. <laughs> right, right. So why do you feel it important to plan your transition that far in advance? I was fortunate, uh, we'll call it, we'll call it fortunate or, or unfortunate, however you want to phrase it. I got a very non-traditional duty assignment. Most Marine Corps officers go to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, or they go to Camp Pendleton. I got stationed in Miami, Florida. What the heck's in Miami, Florida? Awful. It's Mar 4 South. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so go live amongst the palm trees and the sand for four years. It's a very senior command. I walked in as a second lieutenant, first duty station, barely knowing how to wear the uniform. I'm surrounded by lieutenant colonels, colonels, general officers. I mean, everyone had kids that were my age. It was kind of a weird dynamic. I didn't really have a support group within the peers or the lieutenant protection agency. Right. <laughs> the lieutenant protection agency. I like that. However they call it. My boss at the time was in his process of transitioning out. To this day, one of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. Awesome mentor. The only unfortunate thing is that I didn't get to spend more time with him. 
he had done his 20 years and was getting out. He was getting his MBA from John Hopkins, top business school in the country. He was this incredibly intelligent guy that had done all this really cool stuff and he had an awesome resume. I kind of got a first row seat to his struggles. It wasn't finding a job, right? He could get hired anywhere. It wasn't about finding a job. It was about finding the right job and finding a career that he wanted to choose, not by necessity, but because he got to choose it. Yeah. I saw his struggles with, hey, I'm getting all these offers to go be an operations manager for some logistics company, and they're going to pay me a reasonable salary, right? He's going to make a lot, but he wanted more. That's not what he wanted. But because his job search started so late and he hadn't finished his MBA program yet, he hadn't put out the feelers to figure out exactly the industry he wanted to be in, he had to settle on a job. It was a good job. It was a good career for him and he's doing incredibly well now. We still stay in touch, but it wasn't his ideal situation. My wife and I had a long, hard conversation of, do we want the military to be a career? Or do we want it to be our launch pad into the next phase of our life? We decided as a family that we didn't want to have to move every three years. We didn't want our kids going to multiple high schools and middle schools. So we made the decision very early on that it was going to be our five-year commitment. We're going to serve our time to the best of our ability, but we had to always keep an eye on the door. We had to make sure that I was giving myself every opportunity to choose the career I wanted, not take the job out of necessity. That really was the impetus behind why I started this process so early. People talk about five and dive. I mean, you're talking 60% of your time in, Mm -hmm. you were planning your transition. But did you enjoy the Marine Corps while you were in? I did, absolutely. It was really what led me to what my career is now. I found a a passion and a joy and a love for finance, which is hilarious to people that know me and grew up with me because I was a dumb jock, right? I didn't care about school. I was terrible at math. It wasn't that I was terrible. I just didn't care. So I didn't apply myself. I was a history major at the academy. When I started getting into finance, I started realizing, oh, well, this is a lot like history. There's a lot of parallels here because at the end of the day, all finance is, is taking an incredible amount of information that's complicated and complex and distilling it down into digestible bites to present to whoever makes the decision. In my case, it was commander of Marine Corps Forces South. My job was to take all the numbers, all the data and compile it into essentially a one-page sheet that said, this is how much money we have. This is how much we're planning to spend over the next couple of months. This is going to be the impact of these unforeseen circumstances. From a skill building standpoint, it was incredible because I learned how to distill complex topics into the simple so that anybody, whether you have a finance background or not, could understand it. So you found finance to be a passion besides distilling the information around. I'm assuming that you can find your way around a spreadsheet pretty well. Mm -hmm. You like analytics. You like analyzing data. Are those good assumptions? Yes, but I'll caveat it. (laughs) I enjoy telling stories. Okay. 
I enjoy taking input. So the analytics themselves, agnostic to it, right? Right. Do I enjoy the analytical part of it? Sure. But what my passion in is what I really enjoy doing is telling stories. When I was working at Marine Corps Forces South, I was telling the Marine Corps story through dollars. That's actually what ends up making its way to Congress. That's what Congress cares about. They care about that story. They care about the dollars spent and what did those dollars achieve. I like that because telling a story is important. People like stories. Mm -hmm. People respond to stories. People are persuaded by stories. The fact that you bring a story to finance is very interesting because when people think about finance, financial planning, Anything that you put the word financial in, it immediately causes people to glaze over. Exactly. They're thinking about, <laughs> they're thinking about spreadsheets and numbers and right. using concepts. The mere fact that you can do that is very impressive. As part of your consideration for leaving the Marine Corps after your five-year commitment, mm -hmm. what did you look at and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a certified financial planner. Did you make that decision for yourself? Did you narrow in on that role or did you do something different? It was an evolution process. I knew I wanted to be in finance because I was enjoying my job as a financial manager for the Marine Corps so much. I knew I wanted to carry that skill set with me into the civilian world. That's where my three-year transition really started. Right. It was, okay, I get how the Marine Corps does money. I get how the government does money. How does the private sector do money? I went back to school, got my MBA with a concentration in finance. My MBA got me interested in the world of finance and how it applies to the civilian world. And then it was just cold calling. Anybody who would get on the phone with me on LinkedIn, I would call them and just say, hey, what do you do? Tell me about your job. So I would do LinkedIn searches of finance, United States Naval Academy. And I would just try to find academy guys that had graduated and are working in finance now. And I would just ask them a question. What do you do? Do you like it? What is the career path look like? Was fortunate enough to land on a couple of mentors who decided to take me under their wing a little bit and show me their route and what they did and where they wish they would have done it differently. Where they wish they would have done it differently was become hyper-focused, become targeted, and separate yourself from the pack. Once I realized that personal financial planning was my calling and that's what I wanted to do. It was how much can I learn from now until I transition and how can I separate myself from a hiring standpoint? I think the biggest facade that the Naval Academy tells graduates is that you're an academy graduate, you can get hired anywhere you want. And I think that's blatantly false. <laughs> Absolute fallacy. <laughs> You're an academy graduate. You can get your foot in the door anywhere. You have to have something to offer the company if they're going to hire you. I'm fortunate enough that I had the foresight to prepare for this. But, you know, guys that I graduated with, guys that are a year ahead of me or a year below me that are getting ready for the transition, I talk to them all the time. They see that I had everything already lined up and they said, what did you do? I said, you have to develop a skill set. You can't just rely on the ring you wear on your finger to get you into a career. You can get a job that way. You could land a job at some company that does a, a junior military officer transition program. Sure. But is that the career that you want? And were you able to choose that? 
or was it out of necessity? Right. You hit on a very important point. It's the guhe. You hit on the point that when you start looking for informational interviews, you reached out to shipmates. Mm-hmm. Did you reach out solely to shipmates or did you find mentors outside of the Naval Academy Network? I started with the Naval Academy Network because as the fallacy of you can get hired anywhere is false, the the network is strong and shipmates helping shipmates. I, I think they underplay it. Anybody would jump on the, I mean, that's how you and I connected, right? Is, hey, you went to the academy, I went to the academy, let's just talk. Absolutely. And you never know where the conversations are going to take you. So no, it it absolutely started with academy guys. It was just reaching out to as many as I could and just be a sponge. Talk me through what you did. What do you wish you would have done differently? How is your day-to-day life? Do you enjoy it? Does your wife like what you do? That was really important to me. I want a career that's going to allow my family to be happy and enjoy what we do because that's why we work, right? We work to make money so that we can provide for our family. I think a lot of people neglect the fact that you're working for your family. You're not part of a family to work. You hit on a couple of points about what you would tell shipmates who are leaving the military today, things that they should do, such as focus on what you want to do and go after it. You talked about informational interviews. Knowing what you know now, are there other things that you would relate to transitioning military officers as they move to the private sector? Any best practices or lessons learned that you would relate in addition to the two that you provided earlier? I think number one is admitting you're unqualified. And I think that's really, really hard for some people to swallow is I spent 5, 10, 15 years in the Marine Corps or 5, 10, 15 years in the Navy. And I have this incredible leadership style and I've done all these these awesome things and dangerous things and I've served my country. And that's amazing. And everyone that's done that should be revered. But it doesn't mean that you're qualified to take any job. It's an ego check. It was a hard pill for me to swallow. I stumbled my way into my first interview on accident and was just dumbfounded by how unqualified and how unprepared I really was. I think step one and most important thing is saying, I need help. Saying, I need a mentor. I need more education. I need to start working on some type of license or designation, or I need to prepare myself in some way because everyone that served in the military if you're sitting in an interview, they're going to say, what's your biggest strength or what do you bring to the table? They're going to say leadership. Yes, it's intrinsic to all of us, but it's not unique. Every service member knows how to lead. That's what we're trained to do. Right. You have a ton of licenses. Mm -hmm. I see all these acronyms after your name. Did you pursue those certifications and licenses because they were necessary to be a financial planner or did you just want to expand your portfolio? The only requirement to become a financial advisor is depending on the type of financial entity you work for, you just need one license. For some, it's the Series 65, and for some, it's the Series 7. The nuances between the two are beyond the scope of what we're probably trying to get across here. But essentially, you just need one license and a background check. And once you have that, it's like being a realtor. You pass your real estate exam, you get a background check, congratulations, you can sell houses, go forth and do great things. 
That's kind of how financial advising works. But I wasn't confident in that. For me, it was a confidence thing. If I'm going to have people trust me with their most precious asset, you can say that money doesn't run the world and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But if you were to ask any American family, what would you do without cash? They don't go on the vacations. They don't have the beautiful memories with their kids because you can't pay for it. My rationale behind it was, if I'm going to ask someone to trust me with that resource, I need to make sure that I'm as equipped as possible to provide them with the best information and recommendations that's available. My wife always jokes with me because I always said when I graduated from college, I'm never going back to school. That was it. I'm done. <laughs> I haven't left school yet. Right. Since I graduated in 2016, I've yet to not be a student. Right. That's really what I'm trying to do for the rest of my life is lifelong student. It never ends. For me, the designations were a separator. They were a way to show that I've invested in myself. I've invested in the career. I think companies took a notice to that. Sure. I came in with multiple licenses, multiple designations. I think it just showed that I wanted this. It doesn't mean I'm smarter than anybody else. That's not what it means. It just means that I've invested in this. This isn't just an off the whim thing. Like This is my career. This is what I was put on earth to do. It shows a clear picture that you're willing to outwork your competition. That's what I see. Absolutely. I didn't go out intending to fill up my LinkedIn profile with as many designations as I could. It kind of turned into a little bit of a joke. I've now reached the maximum characters that LinkedIn will let you put after your name. <laughs> so that was kind of the joke, right? So it turned into it, but that wasn't the intent. The intent was I got a lot to learn. The financial world is complicated. It is complex. There are nuances that even the smartest people in the world still have trouble wrapping their heads around. I just wanted to get exposure to as much as I possibly could. Sure. Hey, tell me about Westpac Wealth. What's that all about? Westpac Wealth Partners, founded in 2008, maybe not the greatest time in the world to start a financial services company. Right. <laughs> sure was. You're at the bottom of the market. It's going to go up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Founded in 2008 with two guys out in Hawaii and quickly grew. Last year, we were just named the number one financial services company to work for in the small and medium category by Fortune magazine. We've been featured in Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing companies in the country. What we attribute that growth to is an incredibly deliberate decision to do it differently and to serve a segment of the market that had been very underserved. And that demographic was small business owners. Privately held small business owners think 100 and fewer employees with one, two, three partners. They had been kind of ignored by the financial industry. On one side of the table, you have the group benefit providers that are going to set up their 401ks or their health insurance or life insurance, whatever it is. And they might do that very well, but it was very limited in, in their scope of services. Right. On the other hand, you have the traditional asset gatherers and managers like the JP Morgans of the world or the, the Bank of Americas. Once again, they might have been good at what they did, 
but it left a lot to be desired by the business owner. The way that we are structured from a business entity, we're uniquely qualified to assist business owners with not only their business balance sheet, but also their personal balance sheet. We've made a conscious decision to interject ourselves into that gray area in between. Where does the business's balance sheet end? Where does the personal balance sheet begin? That had been something that didn't exist before. The business owners were kind of just left to deal with five different advisors, pulling them in five different directions. And they just wanted to grow their business and eventually leave their business and sell it and monetize on all their blood, sweat, and tears. We've catered our entire model around being able to protect the business while you're in it, help you grow the business in the most tax-efficient manner, monetize it, and then sail off into the sunset of retirement off of all your hard work building up your business from scratch. If you look at the demographics of the country, I think it's something around like 80 or 90%. I like that number. Of everyone that is employed is employed by a small business, right? It is the lifeblood of the economy, yet it was a segment of the population that had never had advice catered directly to them. We've really come up with a full scope of services, anything from making sure that buy-sell agreements are good, having key employee retention planning. You say the word taxes to any business owner, their eyes light up. Like, yes, how can we save on taxes? Let's do it. We integrate it into their exit plan, into their retirement plan, because the only 100% certainty for any business owner is that you will leave the business at some point. And so how do we translate that into the lifestyle they want to live when they exit the business or when their family exits the business? That's excellent. I saw on your LinkedIn profile, it says you never turn down coffee and a donut. And so I'm assuming that shipmates who might be interested in a financial career or interested in talking to you about Westpac Wealth Services or just want to do an information interview with you because you have such great knowledge and you're open to share. Should they go to your LinkedIn page to get your contact information and reach out to you? What's the best way to reach you? I make it as easy as possible to get in touch with me. So I've got my email up there. I've got my phone number. Yeah, text, call, whatever. The coffee thing <laughs> is something I have to the Naval Academy to think. Never drank coffee before in the academy. And then it was the life source that gets you through, right? And so I've, I don't want to say I'm addicted to coffee. I just need it to live. <laughs> You're easy to relate to. I enjoyed talking with you. I'm going to let you out on this one. There's a lot we have in common. I was surprised by that when we first connected. I still am. But tell me something I don't know about you. Teach me something new. Make me say, is that right? When the world shut down back in February, my wife and daughter started the transition out ahead of me and moved back to Vegas to get our house set up and to get our life organized while I finished up my last few requirements with the military. I found myself with ample time. I was trying to figure out a way to best use that time. I stumbled into tutoring. What started as an hour or two a week, I would tutor finance undergrads or postgrad students, really? has now turned into all weekend long, every single night after work, I'm doing five, six plus hours of tutoring 
where I've really found that my enjoyment is with people that are looking for their financial services licenses. People that are studying for the Series 65 or the Series 7, I can give them my experience and I guide them through the information and through the test-taking process because it's a bit of an undertaking. I, I downplayed it earlier, but it's a pretty difficult test. And I've really, really found that I love teaching. What ages are, is there any particular group of folks? I've got kids that are fresh out of college. This is their first job and they need a license. And I've got CEOs of major brokerages that have been in the industry for 30, 40 years that are worth a hundred million plus dollars that need to get this license done and they don't know how to take a test. Is that right? Really? And they call me. <laughs> wow. Nice. You've just set yourself up a nice side hustle. I don't know if you're charging for it or what, but I think you've defined your side hustle. I enjoy doing it, but it is a pretty good little side gig to get a little extra cash for the family. That's our fun money. We take the tutoring money and that's the stuff we use for home improvement projects or for fun stuff. It's been nice to be able to diversify the, the cash flow a little bit. I got a feeling that side hustle is going to grow into quite a lucrative business. I'm going to look for that <laughs> announcement on LinkedIn. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Whatever I can do to help, let me know. I'm here for you. Really enjoyed talking with you, Donald. You are an amazing guest and you provided a lot of good goo hay today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Go Navy. I want to give another big thank you to my guest today and thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and more importantly, Tell another shipmate to do likewise. The more shipmates are talking, the more opportunities we will create for each other. For show notes on today's episode, please go to theguhe.com. Until next time, I'm William Jones. Keep chopping wood. <laughs>